0: If you have your Bibles, we'll be primarily in Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Uh, Before we get there, I will go ahead and read the uh, verse which is starting off our series, uh, through which we are orienting our entire Advent uh, sermon series. From Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, then we'll go to Matthew chapter 8. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then our text today, Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us? O son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Like most small boys, growing up, I had a fascination with who was stronger, who was the strongest, And the way you usually hear that, the way you can usually tell on a playground is something like this. My dad can beat up your dad. He's stronger than your dad. He's more mighty than your dad. I promise my dad can beat up your dad. You guys, some of you have seen my father. He, like me, is a preacher. Preachers can beat up no one. There are no fathers that I would be able to beat up. But that's why so many little kids say my dad can beat up your dad. They're concerned with who is stronger. Then you get a little bit older, and then you start having a little bit more abstract discussions. It's not whose father, who you can see, can fight. It's uh, who's stronger, Batman or Superman. Who would win in a fight between these two? And a lot of little kids choose Batman, which is an insane opinion, because uh, although I don't have the time to get into it today, one is a man with some money and who knows karate. The other one is a Kryptonian who's invulnerable and has heat vision. That's not a real fight. But for a little kid, it is. They don't know better. They don't have any idea. I love these debates. I love these kind of discussions. When I was in college, me and my roommates used to have pointless arguments just to pass the time. The the more pointless, the less meaningful the argument, the more fun it was because you could get as angry as you wanted and nobody really cared at the end of it. We would have discussions like this. Uh, Who would win in a fight? 30 gorillas or a Tyrannosaurus Rex? That's a tough one. One, because, I mean, we've never seen a T-Rex, so we don't really have any idea how big it is, how strong it is. Who would win in a fight, a million ants or a raccoon? I don't know. Raccoons are a lot bigger, but there's a million of the ants. Who's stronger, me after six months of kickboxing lessons or a kangaroo? Would I be able to beat a kangaroo after six months? I don't know. We're discussing trying to figure out who is more mighty. And we don't really grow out of this. It's the reason why every Tuesday after the college football playoff committee releases their results, releases their rankings, people debate. No, this team would beat this team. This team is more mighty than this team. We're trying to figure out who's better, the second best SEC team or the best Pac-12 team. We still have these same debates. But from the text today, we see that we don't really have to worry about who is the strongest in reality. When it comes to the promised one from Isaiah 9, the son who is given, the child who to us is born, who is called the mighty God, we know that he is the strongest. We'll see from that Matthew text today that Jesus is the mighty God. This man, this baby in the manger who became the Messiah on the cross, he is the mighty God who is prophesied in Isaiah 9. And we'll see four ways we know that he is the mighty God in our text today. First of all, the first way we know Jesus is the mighty God from the text is because he's mighty over nature. He's not threatened by nature. Look at verses 23 and 24. And when he came into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. He's in a boat with his disciples on a small sea in the midst of a great storm. Waves are crashing over the sides, the the boat rocks and dives, it's tossed about by the great fury of the squall, and yet, Jesus is asleep. See, the storm to him is no more dangerous than a morning dew. When anyone else would be contemplating tying themselves to the mast, when anyone else would be in fear for their life, Jesus is asleep. He's just not fussed by the storm. The same water that over time wears away the rock and carves a path straight through it. The same water that surges in a tsunami and destroys an entire coastline. The same water that comes with such force in a hurricane that it leaves nothing in its wake. That same water doesn't even wake Jesus up. I'm at a point in my life where I kind of like storms. They're fun. They're cozy. The sound of rain. The feeling. The smell. I get to stay inside, hear the rain on the window, and if I'm lucky, I might even get to take a nap under its soothing sounds. J.C., our daughter, has a sound machine that she plays in her room. Every time we put her down to sleep, we turn on her sound machine. And the sound we chose to go through that machine is a storm. Rain. But I haven't always liked storms. In fact, there were times in my life where I was terrified of storms. There have been particular storms that I can remember where even as an adult... Even indoors, looking through a window, safe within my home, my heart races just a little bit faster than normal because the storm is so great. But Jesus never had that happen. He was never threatened by it. He was never afraid of it. He's not afraid of the storm. He's not threatened because he's the one who controls the storm. Verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. When he's woken up from his nap, he stops the storm. But he stops it how? By rebuking it. Not only is he not afraid of the storm, but it seems as if the storm is afraid of him. He doesn't politely ask the storm to stop whenever it might be convenient. Jesus doesn't send the storm one of those emails. If you have the time... If you are interested, then would you please, whenever it's convenient for you, give me those reports that I asked for, as long as it's not too much trouble. He never has to do that. He stands up, rebukes the storm, and it stops. He boldly and strongly stands up in the boat and, with just a word, causes everything to cease. His control of the storm is so great that it doesn't even take time for the storm to cease. It's not like he tells the storm to stop, and then when the front has finished moving through, that's when there's no more storm. He admonishes the storm, and then immediately is what Mark says, there is a great calm. It's like the storm never even happened. But pay close attention to the disciples' reaction here in verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? They were marveling. They were astonished because no mere man could do this. No mere man could speak to a storm and have it listen. No mere man could control nature in this way. They're marveling because it's so astounding that he does this. They're not even sure he actually is a man. Look at the question. What sort of man is this? This can't be just a normal guy. And with that question, they're getting really to the crux of the issue. Though he is man, though he is truly man, He is not merely truly man. He is also truly God. He's not threatened by nature because he's the one who controls nature. And he's able to control it because he's no mere man. He is God. He created nature. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17 says this. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. When he speaks to the storm and it calms, it does so because that same voice spoke in the beginning created two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen, and caused them to come together to form one molecule for the first time. So the nature he created, he still controls. When he walks on the water in a different storm, in a different part of this gospel, he does so because the one in whom all things hold together caused the water molecules to stick together in such a way that his foot didn't sink through the surface. When he curses the fig tree and it dies later on, it does so because the one through whom and for whom it was created no longer had use for it. And so it withered. Jesus is absolutely in control. He is sovereign and mighty over nature, even in the flesh. Because though he is in the flesh, he is the mighty God. He, Jesus, the man who is the eternal son of God, is the mighty God prophesied in Isaiah 9. And that's important because we have a common idea that we tend to think about Jesus and his miracles, that he was just a man. So when he does a miracle, it's not so much Jesus doing the miracle. It's like he has to pray and access the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. That the Holy Spirit's doing the miracle just using Jesus the man as the tool, similar to how the Holy Spirit might work through us today. And while I don't have time to unpack a full argument against that, let me just point out that this text emphasizes that Jesus, the man in front of them, is the one exercising this power over nature. He doesn't have to get woken up and then pray to the Father and the Spirit as if the Trinity is made up of three separate beings with three separate powers, three separate wills, to see if they might allow him to calm the storm. He just gets up and does it. Because he, Jesus, is the mighty God himself. In the flesh. And he knows it. So he can exercise his divine power at any time according to his divine will. He's not left in suspense wondering whether the storm will chill out. Because just as the calm came by the command of God through whom and for whom all things exist, so did the storm. Though he was sleeping in the boat, he was also crashing high and low pressure systems together to create the storm. To send the waves upon his own face. The mighty God is exercising his might on purpose in these verses. One of my favorite moments from one of my favorite TV shows happens when one character is outside looking up at the sky. He's waiting for it to rain. He needs it to rain. It needs it to rain as soon as possible. It's been forecasted to rain. He knows it's coming. He can feel it in the air, but he needs it to happen now. The sooner the better. So he stands there looking at the sky, muttering, come on, come on. Now, and immediately thunder cracks, lightning flashes across the sky, and there's a huge downpour. And his sister, who happens to be staying there, says, wow, what else can you do? He says, I didn't know I could do that. (laughs) Jesus knew he could do this. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't in shock. He wasn't in suspense. I don't know if this is going to work. I'm going to rebuke this storm and let's see what happens. He knew exactly what was happening the whole time. He was in full control of this situation, full control of everything that we see here. Jesus works his miracles on purpose because he is the mighty God and he is mighty over nature, so he controls it. But our text shows us that he is also mighty over spirits. That's the second way we know Jesus is the mighty God today. He is mighty over spirits because he is more fierce than they are. Verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. These guys and the demons which possessed them were so fierce that no one could possibly pass that way. To anyone else, the way is shut. It has been made by those who are possessed, and the possessed keep it. To cross them is to put your life in danger, to risk entering one of the surrounding tombs permanently permanently. Because of the fierceness, the ferocity of these men. But notice what they have to do when Jesus shows up. They go out to meet him. They're not keeping him away from their path. They have to go to him. They have to see if they can pass his way. They're not going out so they can extend their terror to where he is. Oh no, it's because he is so fierce. He is so mighty that they need his permission to go his way. It's like when the the fourth-grade bully graduates, he goes up into fifth grade. Now he's in a new building. And where before he was the biggest kid, now he is one of the smaller kids. He thought he was big stuff before, but now he's not so sure. Now he's got to go up to the eighth grader and ask if he can get to his locker or not. He really thought he ran the playground until they showed up. And these demons, just like that, they fear Jesus and his power. Verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Do you see how they approach Jesus here? They have to ask him his plans, they don't get to go up and tell him theirs. They're just asking for mercy, that he won't torment them ahead of schedule. Not that he won't torment them at all, but that he won't do it this soon, this quickly. They have to beg not to stay in the men. They know that's not an option. They have to beg to get into pigs rather than the men. They are afraid. And we tend to fear whatever is more powerful than we are. I played football in high school. You might not know that by looking at me now. I played football in high school, and especially then, I was so small. My senior year, I was the same height I am now, and I weighed 130 pounds. I'm not going to tell you how much less that is than what I weigh right now, (laughs) but it's a significant number. I was rail thin, and therefore, I was terrified every time I got on the football field. I was pretty good at offense because on offense, your whole goal once you get the ball is to try to not get hit. So please don't hit me. I will run as fast as I can toward my end zone, away from you so that you don't hit me. I was terrible at defense because I didn't want to hit anyone. Because everyone was bigger than me. I was afraid because everyone I saw was bigger than me and they wanted to hurt me. Whatever is more powerful than we are, that's what we tend to fear. So when it came to football, I wasn't very good in part because I was afraid. I feared them because I knew they could destroy me, just as the demons feared Jesus. Just as they, though, though their fear was certainly more founded than mine, feared him. I was afraid of a few hefty hillbillies while they were afraid of an omnipotent enemy. And they had reason to be afraid. Because Jesus is the one in control in this entire situation. Verse 32. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They are only able to go into the pigs because the mighty God allowed them to. He is totally and completely in control of this entire situation. It's not a scenario like we tend to think or like Hollywood movies would uh, tend to make us believe, where we don't know who is more powerful, where we don't know who's going to win, the forces of good or the forces of evil. This isn't an epic struggle where Jesus happens to come out on top. It's not even a fight. He's the mighty God, and so he is mighty even over spirits. And luckily for us, he is also mighty over sin. That's the third way we know Jesus is the mighty God from the text today, because he is mighty even over sin. Not only is he mighty over sin, but he is looking to exercise that power as he actively looks for faith. Verse 1 in chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. You see, a God who is mighty over sin, but doesn't look for faith through which that sin is conquered, that wouldn't do us any good. A God who doesn't provide that faith doesn't save anyone. But Jesus, in these verses, sees the people bringing a paralytic to him. And beyond merely seeing these acts, he sees the faith which drives these actions, which is pushing them to bring their friend to him. First John 5.4 says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, our faith, our belief, overcomes the world and wins the victory. Not because our faith is so great and so mighty, Not because we are so strong in our belief, but because the one in whom that faith has been placed is so great and so mighty. That's how we overcome. So Christ now is looking for faith because it's by grace through faith that we are saved. So he looks for faith so that he can apply his power and his victory by grace through that faith and for the forgiveness of our sins. And forgiveness is always the result of his might over sin. Verse 2 again. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw their faith, he forgave their sin. Again, what good is, is it to us to have a God who is mighty over sin but doesn't exercise that might on behalf of his people to forgive sin? He could be as strong as he wants, but that does nothing for us unless he exercises that power, that strength, that might on our behalf to defeat the enemy that sin is for us that we couldn't defeat. But he does exercise that power. In his person and work, all that we come together in this season to celebrate... The birth, yes, but also the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Christ has shown his mighty power as the mighty God to defeat sin and death. To atone for his people so that we might be forgiven of our sins. He is mighty over sin and death, which comes with it. And he has given that victory to us by grace through faith. First Corinthians 15 says this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given that victory to us, that he has won for us. The victory over sin and death, which he won in his power by dying and coming back to life. He has given that to his people. By forgiving our sins and removing from us the punishment of death. And no mere man can do that. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? They said he was blaspheming. Because he was claiming to to forgive sins. And no one but God can forgive sins. No man can do that. He's showing us in this text, not only that he is mighty, but that he is God in the flesh. The mighty God who is mighty even over sin. And his might extends even to our physical bodies as well. That's the final way we see from our text that Jesus is the mighty God. He's mighty even over our bodies the physical realm as well as the spiritual, to prove that he could do whatever is hardest, that he has the power to not only forgive sins, but also heal him in his legs, to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. He healed the paralytic, verse 6. <clears throat> but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Allow me to point something out to you here that if you're not paying attention, you might not notice. His primary focus was on the man's soul, not his body. While Christ is mighty over our bodies, our bodies aren't his primary concern. I think it's important for us to remember that, to understand this truth. The first thing Jesus did when presented with a man who could not walk was not to heal his legs and to allow him to walk. The first thing Jesus did before anything else happened, his primary focus was on the forgiveness of the man's sins. Jesus emphasized the gospel over the eventual effects of the gospel. Though he knew he was going to heal the man's legs eventually, he forgave his sins first. And in so doing, he showed us What is of first importance to him? You see, with forgiven sins, Jesus knows the man will one day receive a new body, a glorified body. He knows the man will one day walk again if his sins are forgiven. But legs that work well enough to walk into hell in his own power don't really do the man that much good, do they? They're not really that helpful for him. And we'll talk about God's might over our health in a moment. But I think we need to really grapple with this truth. That we see here, that things dealing with the gospel are of more importance to Jesus than our physical problems. Things which deal with our souls are of more importance to God than the things which deal with our bodies. So please hear this in the way it's intended, in love. But hear it as clearly as I can possibly say. We tend to focus way too much on the physical, way too much on the immediate, and way too little on the spiritual way too much on the body and too little on the soul. We Christians tend to spend way too much time praying for the physical ailments of ourselves and for those around us and way too little time praying for gospel impact and the lives of ourselves and those around us. Most of our Sunday small groups begin with a prayer time. We begin most Wednesday evenings with updates on a prayer list. And I will conservatively estimate That about 90% of those requests that we make, 90% of those prayers that we pray deal with physical problems. The vast majority of them are this person is sick, this person's in the hospital, this person has surgery, this person has cancer. And it's not wrong to pray for those things. Absolutely not. But I think it's wrong to pray only for those things. I think it's wrong to focus only on those things. It's even crazier when you think that most of this 90%, most of these prayers are on behalf of people who are Christians. I've heard it said uh, of other people, and I think it's probably true of us as well, that we spend more time praying to keep Christians out of heaven than praying to keep non-Christians out of hell. And man, I think that's true. And shame on us for that to be true. It's my hope for us that we would have a right perspective, that we'd have a right priority, which focuses on the spiritual before the physical. It's more focused on evangelism, more focused on our own discipleship, our own Christian walk than our own bodies, more focused on confession and repentance, more focused on the preaching of the word, not only here in this time, in this place on a Sunday morning, but also you as you go throughout your life spreading the gospel more focused on honoring God with our lives than making sure that our lives are easier. I hope that we might be able to cultivate that perspective. Let us remember when we pray, when we talk to one another, when we come together, when we read scripture, when we listen to sermons, that though God is mighty over our bodies, he is primarily concerned with our souls before our bodies. Because your soul is the same one you'll always have. Your body will not be. So he's primarily concerned with the soul over the body. Having said that, though, he does control our bodies. He does control their health as well as that of our souls. Verse 6 again. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Verse 7, and he rose and went home. After forgiving the man's sins, Jesus also healed his body. Now the man can walk. Jesus showed his might when he forgave his sins. But he also showed his might when he healed his legs. So, while I think it is absolutely good and right for us to have a proper emphasis, a proper focus, a proper priority on the spiritual On the soul over the body. It would also be wrong for us to ignore the body. To ignore the physical. To act as if God doesn't care. To say that it's wrong to pray for those things. No, it's not wrong to pray for anything. You're a child of God. If my daughter came to me and said. First of all said miraculously. Because she's not speaking. If she said my tummy hurts. I would want to fix her tummy. Because I love her. In the same way, it's not wrong for us to bring our physical ailments to God. However, as much as I want J.C.'s tummy not to hurt, I want way more, a million times more, for her to confess her sin and repent and through belief and faith come to that faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I want for her. And I think it's the same thing that God wants for us. While it's good and right for us to remember that God is primarily focused with our physical, with our spiritual health, we can't go so far as to say that he is only focused on our spiritual health. He loves us, so he cares about what affects us. He's mighty over our bodies. He controls our health, so we should take our health concerns to him. So don't mishear me. It's not that we should never pray for physical things. It's that we shouldn't primarily pray for physical things. It's that we should not only pray for physical things. Jesus heals the man's legs and thus shows us that he has the authority to forgive sins. He shows us that he is the mighty God who is mighty not only over our sins, but even over our bodies. He's mighty over our health. And he does all of this, all the miracles he did, all that he has revealed himself to be, all that he has come to be as the mighty God so that we might glorify God. Verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Just as they saw what Christ has done and glorified God, so now we who have seen what he has done should glorify him as well. In this season, most of all, let us glorify him. He is the mighty God who is mighty over nature, mighty over spirits, mighty over sin, and mighty over our bodies as well. So, it's my prayer, my hope, that we might begin to glorify him as the mighty God today. That we'll live differently because he is the mighty God today. That we'll come to faith through confession and repentance in this mighty God who has won the victory for his people today. Let that be said of us. Let that be what's true. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to bring your word to your people. Thank you for not only being the mighty God, who is all-powerful, who has all power, but who exercises that power for his people, who acts for his people, who gave us a son, a child, who was the wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Help for us to trust that today. To trust that your power is enough for us. Your power over sin, your victory over sin, which was won for us, that that is effective for us. That your might isn't just might that you have, it's might that you use, might that you show, might that we get to enjoy. Lord, heal our bodies. Help us. Ease our pain, ease our suffering. But more than that, heal our souls. Save us. Forgive us. Let us rest and trust in the hope that though our bodies may be broken now, there will come a day when they aren't. Though our times may be hard now, there will come a day when they aren't. Help us, Lord. Use your might for your people. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.